This is a podcast from the Digital Preservation Program at the Library of Congress. For more information, please visit digitalpreservation.gov. My guest today is Chris Greer, Assistant Director for Information Technology, R&D. He's on assignment from the National Science Foundation to the Office of Science and Technology Policy, which is a unit of the Executive Office of the President of the United States. Chris, thank you very much for talking with us today. Pleasure to join you. Now, uh, can you tell me a little bit about your your, your background? It's in the biosciences, is that correct? Yeah, that's right. My training, uh, my original training in in, uh, obtaining my PhD degree was in biochemistry. Uh, And it was in um, biochemistry that uh, the importance of digital data and all first became uh, evident uh, to me, particularly uh, in in my experience in the field of genomics where digital uh, information is so crucial. Were you involved with the Human Genome Project at all? No, I wasn't uh, directly involved. I was one of the beneficiaries, if you will, uh, 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 a scientist who had the opportunity to make um, use of all of the information that came out of uh, that project. And one of the things that we were looking at was a process called uh, RNA splicing, which is a rearrangement of information uh, uh, that's present in DNA and then expressed uh, and activated through a molecule called RNA. Uh, and a great deal of information on that uh, came out uh, as a result of the Human Genome Project and other genome projects going on at the same time. So that would be a terrific example of um, international information sharing, just the, the wealth of information that came out of that project. Yeah, absolutely. It's uh, uh, Jim Gray uh, uh, called it the fourth paradigm, uh, the notion that in science there long, uh, there had long been um, a hypothesis in experimental uh, science, observational science, uh, theoretical uh, science, computational science, and now um, information-driven or data-driven uh, science. And so that's uh, one of the, the, the outcomes to the Human Genome Project, um, the ability to use a vast amount of information for uh, new scientific progress in, in innovative ways. Can you tell me a bit about, um, well, your work in Washington. How, how did you get to Washington? Yeah, I uh, joined the National Science Foundation as a, a program officer. Um, I had done a rotation, a, a temporary visit to the National Science Foundation uh, at one point, uh, and um, that uh, got my interest up. And then an opportunity to join the foundation came along, and I, I joined as a program officer in uh, biological sciences uh, directorate. And one of the things uh, that I had responsibility for was the Protein Data Bank, which is an international resource that has um, the uh, three-dimensional structures of biological macromolecules um, and a very powerful uh, database, and that really uh, added to my interest in uh, digital data as a driver for science. So what's your current role now, Chris? Yeah, I have, um, I'm currently now on assignment to the Office of Science and Technology Policy. I'm an, an employee still of the National Science Foundation, but on assignment here in the Executive Office of the President to uh, OSTP. Um, my portfolio here includes uh, research and development activities in the area of networking and information technologies, uh, and that would include um, digital scientific data and, and, um, and the related issues. You've written that the federal networking IT research launched and fueled the digital revolution. So 
can, can you talk a little bit more about the role of the federal government in, um, well, while the Internet's been exploding over the past, the commercial Internet, and while it's been exploding over the past 20 years, what's been the role of the federal government? Yeah, that's a that's a, a good question. The federal government has a, a unique role in the information technology realm and in the science realm more generally. Um, they, the uh, federal government is in the position of unique position of uh, investing in um, research that has a long horizon that uh, doesn't necessarily have uh, immediate yield, something in the next quarter or next year. Uh, but something that might only emerge after five years or maybe 20 years uh, or more uh, of, of work. Um, and so that kind of fundamental science, the discovery-based uh, science, where um, going in, you may not know what the most important results of that research are eventually uh, going uh, to be. And the, the early days of, of um, packet switching networks and the concepts that gave rise to what we now call the Internet are ex an example of that, where the original uh, investments were focused on um, the ability to connect machines to one another and to provide for uh, easily usable and resilient uh, networks. Um, and so th that kind of investment um, in, the, in the late 60s, early 70s, um, uh, in, by uh, the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, some of the work by the National Science Foundation in, in the late 70s and, and early 80s in its um, computer science networks and uh, and related things uh, in, in that area, are all uh, all eventually gave rise uh, to the internet. But they were investments made uh, with uh, long-term horizon uh, in mind. So that's one important. Uh, role of the government. Um, another important role is uh, ensuring that we have the uh, basic uh, infrastructure for research and engineering, um, uh, science and engineering, research and, and education. Um, these are the, the universities uh, and their um, faculties and laboratories, the nonprofit research organizations, some of the national labs, and a wide variety of, of organizations that provide the basic research capacity of the country. Uh, and that's another important role uh, that the government uh, has. These are roles that are different from those of the uh, private sector. Uh, and appropriately, the private sector focuses on taking some of the fundamental ideas that emerge from basic research uh, that's funded by the government and others uh, and uh, developing those into services and products that are uh, widely available typically on a, a shorter-term basis, but, but certainly uh, with that, uh, that interest in mind. And how does that work internationally? So that you're talking about our own American cyber infrastructure, but of course you want to communicate internationally with, with other uh, peer organizations. How, how does that work internationally? Yeah, I, I think all of us would agree that, that science today is global. Uh, that the, the kinds of grand challenges that uh, exist in the in the modern environment, um, uh, you know, understanding our our climate, uh, looking for clean uh, and uh, renewable uh, energy sources, understanding the interplay of uh, that, that makes up a global economy and and how important that is to individual nations. These are all grand challenges that won't be solved by an individual. Uh, 
nation or a small group of researchers. Uh, rather, they require uh, uh, cooperation at the global level. And, and certainly, uh, the Internet and information technologies, particularly network uh, technologies, are inherently uh, international. Uh, and so working closely with our, our international counterparts around the world uh, is an important uh, piece of, of, the, of the federal government's role in that landscape. When you say your international counterparts, who would the international counterparts be? Yeah, the um, European Union has a, uh, you know, a, a, um, a, a joint uh, research framework uh, that they uh, maintain currently called Framework 7, a good example. Um, that has significant investments in it in the areas of uh, networking and information technology. I think uh, recognizing, as, as we do, uh, the importance of, of information technologies to society as a whole uh, and to science in, in particular. Uh, so, so that's uh, an example. There are counterparts to the National Science Foundation uh, around the world, uh, equivalent uh, counterpart in China, uh, in uh, Japan, uh, uh, and, and you know, essentially uh, every other country around the world, which which re reflects the you know basic importance of science to society. I think um, broadly. Tell me a little bit more ab about uh, the networking and information technology research program. The uh, networking and information technology research uh, and development program, or uh, NITRD, pronounced here in Washington as as NIDRD. Uh, is the primary mechanism the federal government uses to coordinate its investments in, uh, in networking and information technology research. There are um, uh, roughly 15 agencies and offices who are formal members of that program, uh, ranging from components of the Department of Defense to Department of Energy, National Science Foundation, DARPA, as we've mentioned earlier, NASA, uh, the Environmental Protection Agency, the National Institutes of Health, and, and a variety uh, of others as well. Um, the, collectively, those agencies invest uh, a little over $4 billion in, uh, in research and development spending uh, each year. And the goal of the program is to ensure that those investments are effective uh, in terms of of um, avoiding duplication of efforts, uh, identifying opportunities for leveraged investments, shared investments, um, coordinating those uh, investments, uh, uh, and um, ensuring that all of those who are making those investments are well informed about what else is being done in that uh, same space. So it's a mechanism established uh, by law by Congress in, in its uh, High Performance Computing Act of 1991. Uh, so it's been around uh, for a while. Uh, it, uh, uh, it, it functions to uh, coordinate that uh, research investment and um, uh, is very active. Now, the report that uh, this report is available on the, the NITRD site, the uh, Harnessing the Power of um, Digital Data for Science and Society, now, is that, is that a work of, uh, is that the subgroup, the working group on digital data, is that a subgroup of NIDRD? No, in this case, uh, the, uh, the group that, uh, that prepared that report, Harnessing the Power Report, was a working group of the subcommittee, or sorry, the Committee on Science of the uh, National Science and Technology Council. So let me explain 
a little bit of that. In the Executive Office of the President, uh, OSTP is responsible for um, uh, uh, managing the National Science and Technology Council. The Council is a group of the um, uh, leads of uh, the science agencies across the federal government, and it's co-chaired by the president and the president's science advisor. The National Science and Technology Council maintains a number of standing uh, committees that uh, do the day-to-day -day, uh, kind of work of the council. One of them is the Committee on Science, uh, and it was the Committee on Science that established this working group uh, to uh, uh, it was, in fact, the working group was charged with both uh, developing and promoting the implementation of a framework for digital scientific uh, data in the context of the federal government and its investments in uh, research. And really, it was the, the insights of uh, Arden Biment, who's the director of the National Science Foundation and then director of the National Institutes of Health, Elias Zerhouni, uh, who uh, launched uh, that um, that working group uh, and got us uh, started down that, that path. And, and this report, of course, is terrific. And you, you nicely boil down your findings to uh, three recommendations. Can you, can you talk about those three recommendations? Yeah, and let me say a little bit about the, the process. We, the, we had the very good fortune in the working group of having assigned to the working group some of the best uh, data experts from across the federal agencies. Uh, and so uh, the report, I think, is is well done because they uh, brought their their uh, expert knowledge and their commitment uh, to the subject. So I, I, I have to commend them on an, an exceptional job. They um, worked hard to focus on the uh, specific um, uh, issues and how to address that. Uh, and they had three fundamental recommendations uh, that that are as follows. They, First was uh, centered around the notion that the issues in digital scientific data are constantly changing. The underlying information technologies evolve rapidly. We all have the experience of getting a cell phone, and you know, a few weeks later, discovering you know the next model uh, is out and provides lots of different functionality. Uh, new computers uh, constantly coming along. Uh, networking capabilities that increase. Um, uh, it seems almost monthly, but certainly on a, on a regular basis. Uh, and the amount of information generated uh, constantly uh, increasing. Um, and so that's a very dynamic landscape. And uh, any solutions that you might come up with today are going to have to evolve and, and uh, change well, with changes in that landscape. Uh, and so the committee recommended that in, in the face of that, there should be a standing body whose uh, mission it is uh, to uh, constantly assess the digital data landscape and revise uh, policy recommendations and uh, implementation recommendations and provide a, a point of contact for uh, our private sector counterparts as well as our international counterparts uh, uh, to the federal government and its activities in the digital data realm. So that was the first recommendation, a standing body that can deal with a constantly changing landscape. The uh, second recommendation uh, was that uh, digital scientific data are, in many cases, the primary uh, products of the investments in research and development that the science agencies 
are making. So there are important assets that are generated uh, by those uh, agencies, and recognizing the value of those assets, uh, the Dep federal departments and agencies should each have uh, an appropriate digital scientific data policy uh, that can be made uh, publicly available. Uh, and that's to uh, ensure that the agency has uh, considered carefully for itself how digital scientific data fits within the context of their respective missions uh, and serves the needs of their uh, communities of, of interest and communities of, of practice and are readily available and understandable to those uh, communities. So that was the second uh, recommendation for an agency-level data policy. Um, the third recommendation is that uh, for projects that will be generating uh, digital scientific data, that you know going into this you're going to be generating digital information that will be of value to others beyond the immediate uh, project team, that uh, before you start such a project, you should think through the, uh, the issues of digital data management, some uh, consideration of the types of information that will be uh, generated, the, um, the um, plans for access, who can have access to that information under what uh, conditions, any protection provisions, are there privacy or confidentiality issues associated with this data, maybe intellectual property uh, issues, um, uh, so protection issues are, are important. Uh, and, and then consider the full data lifecycle. How long should this data uh, be preserved? Who's going to be responsible for that uh, preservation? Are there important handoff steps, perhaps from the project team to a central data repository or uh, other kinds of handoff steps? And uh, have those been appropriately uh, planned for? Uh, and then finally, what are the provisions for interoperability um, uh, and um, the ability to understand that data not you know months later, but decades uh, later, and so the standards for information about the data or metadata are are crucial as well in a data management plan. And so this third recommendation goes to careful planning for the full uh, data lifecycle in a project that's going to generate uh, important and valuable data. That idea of the handoff steps and continuing preservation is pretty interesting. And, and, and you have written that you can't save everything. That's, that's kind of a side thing. So th that's probably part of data management. But the long-term preservation, as you, as you do plan, uh, how far can you plan? Yeah, that, that, that's an important uh, challenge. What are, what's the long-term uh, uh, picture? And furthermore, it's important to recognize that even that long-term picture is dynamic. That in many instances, data that we've saved today or this year may be superseded by information uh, 10 years from now, or the ability to generate uh, that information more efficiently than uh, preserving it. So uh, the preservation decision is not a one-time decision. It's a continuing uh, decision. And I think that's an important part. Uh, the folks to make that decision will have to be a combination of, of people people who understand the scientific context for that uh, information, what's the value to science and society, uh, to data managers who understand you know, what, what are the costs, what are the trade-offs for this uh, preservation decision, uh, and 
um, uh, archival scientists who can understand the context, the value of sampling, uh, all of the uh, long-term preservation issues. So that, that decision-making process is going to have to engage that spectrum of people. And we will have uh, you know, a variety of organizations with uh, differing kinds of time horizons. The project team may have a preservation plan that really deals with the, the, the period of the project, maybe three to five years. Um, institutional preservation organizations that have you know, a decade or several kinds of preservation uh, timelines. And then organizations like the Library of Congress or the National Archives and Records Administration that have very long horizons. For, for NARA, the National Archives, um, their mission is the preservation of, of government information for the duration of the union. Uh, that, uh, we presume, is a very long uh, time. Uh, in uh, that kind of timeline, uh, some of the challenges are um, uh, preserving the information about the information in a form that 100 years from now can still be understood. Uh, and that's uh, something that the archives and the library are, are both quite uh, good at. There are also the technology challenges. We all have the experience of having you know, old floppy disks, real floppy disks, um, sitting in a closet somewhere uh, for which you have no longer have a computer that's capable of reading that drive. And that's because of the constant advance of technology. And so an important uh, responsibility of, of these uh, long-term preservation organizations is forward uh, migration of information, digital information, in the face of constant uh, technology change. That's uh, an, a critical technical challenge, which is, as you can imagine, fundamentally different from the kinds of challenge that a National Archives or a Library of Congress has typically been used to working with, where um, preserving uh, ink on paper artifacts has been uh, one of the more uh, you know, common uh, challenges uh, in the past. This is a new and, and interesting challenge, and both organizations are stepping up uh, very effectively to that challenge, I think. Well, Chris, thank you very much for talking with us today. Good to be with you. This has been a podcast from the Digital Preservation Program at the Library of Congress. For more information about digital preservation, please visit digitalpreservation.gov.